Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Wednesday night edition of the pod. I really wish I'd thought of this topic a day earlier because I think it's quite apropos given that it's April Fool's Day. You're probably listening to this on April 2nd, but Danny, we're recording this on April 1st. Still counts, right? Yep, counts enough for me. Do the days even matter anymore? (laughs) Yes, because we still record Sunday through Thursday nights. And my my weekend is Friday and Saturday, so uh, kind of. (laughs) So the reason, of course, that we decided to do this is because of April Fool's. And we wanted to talk about the biggest floppers in the NBA. The players who focus the most on fooling the referees. And we'll also give a little bit of love to the players who flop the least, which I, I think is only fair. And many of these players are great players. However, I find their call-seeking behavior to be a relative blight on the game. It's not their fault. They are not bad people. They are responding to the incentives that they are given. In many cases, I think uh, the referees, but really more so even the league in terms of the way it calls the number of fouls. We've talked many times about the fix the charge hashtag. even did a presentation on it at Sloan last year. So they are responding to the incentives that they are given. I think the league has done a decent job making incremental improvements, though, such as the three-shot foul for the field contact and then decide to throw it up after you feel the contact, that they're now making that a non-shooting foul. So they've done some things to take away some of these rough-baiting behaviors, but there are still many, many players who just can teach you a master class in deception. So we're just going to go through some of our candidates here. We'll just switch off nominating someone, talk about uh, the genius uh, of their flopping, and uh, then we'll pick our top three biggest floppers and then also give some credit to the players who deserve it for actually playing basketball and using the foul rules as they are intended, which is as a constraint when they're trying to prevent you from playing basketball, not a reward that you should be seeking out from the referees. Yeah, at times on the NBA cast in particular, I talk about the difference between how I see flopping and embellishment. So the idea for me is that a flop is accentuated contact that basically doesn't exist. So the, you know, flop or or so severely exaggerating the contact so as to like basically nullify that. So like you could see there was a great Josh Jackson one a few years ago where he flew a mile and a half even though he got bumped or something like that. But but flopping but embellishment is it's interesting like i kind of i tied the two together here partially because some floppers are also good embellishers and i think of it from a soccer context like basically if you get bumped and then you make it seem like a bigger bump that's embellishment and if you make it something out of nothing that's more flopping but in this since they're so correlated and interrelated there aren't really guys that are particularly adept at one and not at the other or practitioners of one and not the other that i i kind of felt like it all fit together Yeah, and I think I would also throw in there as well 
a little more extensive which is just the call seeking behavior where you are doing stuff where the point of it is to make the referee blow his whistle in your favor not to actually either score or stop your opponent in a legitimate way other than the rest of referee blowing his whistle and generally that involves what you're talking about the embellishment of all right i'm going to jump in front of this person and yeah you know what maybe i'm utilizing the contact to fall down but if i wanted to i could easily stay on my feet i might just get knocked back a step or two you're basically jumping in front of someone making yourself a limp noodle and then falling down when they hit you in the example of a lot of defensive floppers they're playing offensive floppers too i think actually there may be more offensive floppers than defensive floppers these days but I want to start off with the player who I would give the best young flopper award to. The Tour de France has the best young writer award, the white jersey. So we've got the best young flopper. So give a white jersey to Trey Young of the Atlanta Hawks. Oh, Lord. I mean, Young is also the modern the modern prototype of the call-seeking behavior part of this. He does certainly flop too. But, I mean, we noticed it in the college film on him. And like the yeah, Oklahoma yeah. stuff. I, I called him the most developed young bullshit file seeker that I'd ever seen at the time when, when we watched his film. And, and kind the, of the, part of why I was high on his prospects. The funniest part of that was when we saw it in Summer League. Because there is not, like, I mean, Summer League is not usually a high flop atmosphere for a bunch of different reasons. But Trey Young was just on his game really, really early. And it's all sorts of things. I mean, also, Young is a particularly challenging flopper to officiate because because he's so much smaller than everybody else. So he kind of takes the, uh, I used to call them the J.J. Barea sympathy calls. Those were more defensive than offensive. That was a, a, in the vein of like a, sm- a small guy is guarding a big guy and gets bumped a little bit and falls over and gets gets it to be a charge. But Trey Young basically does that all the time. He does it on offense. He does it on defense and just tries to force the ref to make calls and w- on the idea that he will benefit more than he is hurt. Young shoots 86% for the line, 9.5 free throw attempts per 36 minutes astronomical free throw rate that has only risen this year is 33 percent last year up to 45 percent this year he is just anytime he feels any kind of contact on his body going to the basket he'll throw up a shot and he'll get foul calls especially against bad teams he will also do the feel contact as he's going around the screen and barf up a shot there and get the call he just he'll snap the head back he's got a pretty slight body anyway but for a guy who basically is never going to be just straight up finishing over bigger players at the rim the fact that he has a 45 percent free throw rate is absolutely ridiculous and i mean that's a big part of his game that people uh, never talk about so well, Trey Young. Here's another way to put it. Trey Young was seventh in free throw attempts per hundred possessions. You want to do it per hundred possessions because then it scales on pace. Hawks have pace. He's seventh. Here are the top six in from six to one: Zion, Jimmy Butler, Luca, Joel Embiid, Giannis, and Harden. Slight difference between him and some of those other guys. Absolutely. All right, give give us a nominee here. This isn't one of my top guys, but it's somebody that I want to mention. Also, because I believe he is the most recent player to actually receive a fine for flopping. That was something that, remember, was a big deal in like 2012, 13, and 14, and then the league went away from it. I believe Kiki Vandeweghe claimed it's because there wasn't flopping anymore, which is not yeah. true. Well, well, I mean, they, they have cut down on the, you feel something, and then you've just been yes. shot out of a kit. Like, you, you go down, you twist to the floor fall on your butt after minor or no contact whatsoever but the most recent guy was Patrick Beverly and Beverly is one of a couple of 
players who they get into a lot on defense, but they also know how yeah. to accentuate the contact that sometimes is generated by that activity. Oh, Beverly- yeah. The, they initiate the contact to get physical, and then when the other person gets physical, they'll flop. Yeah, it's Extremely like, annoying behavior. To me, to me the two guys like that who aren't in my top three, are the two standouts are Beverly and Eric Bledsoe. Both tenacious, awesome defenders, but both of them oh, know... I, like- I got another guy in that category, too, Marcus Smart. Oh, see, he's in my top three. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah. oh no he's marcus smart is like the king of this specific type of flopping and like oh, bledsoe had one uh it was a couple weeks before the hiatus where he basically like put his he put his chin like right on some like right in somebody's grill and then got a slight tick and then flew backwards it's like oh come on um which yeah. it was pretty- ba- back in his phoenix days too bledsoe was an underrated field contact on the perimeter and barf up a shot um you know again he's maybe the strongest point guard in basketball uh up there with russell westbrook and so uh him just getting knocked off his path and having to uh throw up a shot that he never would have taken without the contact uh fortunately we don't see that as much of him because he's not running pick and roll now as much with the bucks so uh but defensively he still uh remains a a master smart though i mean i think we have to talk about him next Uh, might as well what uh what aspects of his genius uh really enticed you well, so what I am really impressed by with Marcus Smart as a flopper is that he does it on both ends of the floor. Like there are a lot of one-sided floppers and Marcus Smart, you know, he if he gets contact on the offensive end, he's going to do it. And on the defensive end, he's the archetype of the get into somebody and then also if something happens that is slightly untoward that you can take advantage of, just get into it. And the fa- the way that Marcus Smart is able to do both of those things is so impressive to me that he, he has this really good sense. I mean, he does get, he was the last Last guy fined for flopping before Patrick Beverly way back in 2016. Um, and he just he just gets into it all the time. And it, it also, like, he's t- one of the other ones like Beverly who he, he does a lot of the other kind of cheekiness along with somebody else that we'll talk about soon enough. And so it's kind of the combination of, like, he's in it a lot and then he also sells a lot, which makes it just so hard to officiate. What really makes Smart a, an all-star on this list is you mentioned he does it on both ends, but he also, it might be the premier loose ball flopper oh, God. in the NBA. Oh yeah, and, like the the like I get a slight little elbow and just go into go into the stands. Yeah. As he's going for for the loose ball, he'll just make himself airborne and just be shot out of a cannon backwards. He'll land so heavily on these flops. You're worried that he's injuring himself. Like a lot of times, it'll be either like his butt or his shoulder, or he'll just like flop into the first row. It's really it's incredible that anytime he's going going up in the air for a loose ball. If he's not 100% going to get it, he's going to flop every single time. He, he, he to me, I mean, he, he's going to be a strong contender. I'll, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody else I want to mention, he, he, Joel Embiid is an inconsistent flopper, but he has also had some real tours to, I guess it'd be tours to force. I can't, I don't know what the yeah. plural on that is. Yeah, um, I think it'd be tours to force, yeah. Like, including the one that was, I think, most prominent, that when he got Andre Drummond ejected for a, for a, because it was a second tech on a, on contact that didn't exist. And Embiid is really good at timing those to try to try to accentuate it to, to escalate a situation. And he's also so big and so strong that sometimes it's convincing because he doesn't do it all the time. But I wanted to mention him. Okay, we we got a lot more. Uh, and, and Joel is certainly the call seeking behavior on the offensive end. Oh, yeah. is quite quite remarkable as well. The rip moves, like it, to be maybe the most physically imposing center in the NBA, and then also anytime you feel contact driving to the basket, you're just gonna throw something 
something up especially going to his left along the left baseline or going for the rip move as well and you know it does work because guys partially because guys are trying so hard to just lean on him because he's so big that he can draw those fouls but it's not that aesthetically pleasing all right quick break here and we uh we got lots more to get to okay time for another nominee for me chris paul has got to be uh, <laughs> yep. i mean that's just yet yet another great player a guy that i really respect really reached his apex i thought in i want to say it was game four of that series last year against golden state at home where he just was doing every single thing that he possibly could to flop just doing it on every play even before they're even the bonus i mean there have been studies about how whenever okc gets in the bonus he his foul drawing goes up exponentially because he's going for the rip move i mean he's going to do that every single time regardless uh, of uh or, or once you get into the bonus he's doing that every single time he also gets bonus points for actually injuring himself and missing like a month due to a shoulder injury that he sustained on a flop back in 2014. Yeah, and Paul's another player who flops on both ends of the floor. I think of him more as a defensive flopper, but he does do plenty, plenty on each side. And I mean, when you oh, oh, there's another one too is the uh, the dribble in front of the guy who's yes, running that's exactly where I was court. going. It's like. Chris Paul is if we, when we expanded into call seeking behavior or what I call just general cheekiness, he just he takes that to another level of the things that somebody does on a basketball court solely to generate official reactions. I mean, Chris Paul is the he's he's not only a a star in that he's an innovator. And I wish those innovations never <laughs> happen, but he is an innovator. Like if there was a like a a ref baiting Vanguard award, I think that Chris Paul would be one of the like he would be one of the people in like in that nomination process almost every year. And along with somebody yeah. else that we haven't mentioned, that'll get to soon enough. Yeah, I, I think Cheeky is being too kind. Percy, the tank engine, is Cheeky. Chris Paul, I, I consider his stylings far more sinister. Another guy too who gets to the line all the time, but never ever shoots a layup. That's always like a real indicator that you might be a huge flopper yes and yeah just uh, the, I, I he's he's gonna feature prominently here uh, as well someone who's not in that same rarefied air for a couple different reasons but it's so funny to me with with Jokic he he's like a facial flopper I don't think it's necessarily always his whole body but he always acts <laughs> like he's been drilled and like hit, hit all the time and so it's like it's I wanted to mention him just as like a, a faint faint honorable mention because nobody ever and he also like yells at the refs post like I, I I'm a little bit yeah. worried that he might kick in a couple of years that he might move into this group kind of like Chris Paul sort of aged into being a flopper that Jokic might too that's a great one here's another lower honorable mention Draymond Green for as smart as he is he might be the person who flops the most but completely ineffectually yes he just like he'll post up a lot of times and you know they run a lot of their offense out of the post with all those split cuts and whatnot and so he'll try to just go through someone's arm or feel some contact after he takes a dribble and the refs are just kind of like we know you can't score out of here we're just even if it is technically a foul on some of these rip moves or hand checks they're just like no nah, we're not giving you that call come on Draymond like you, you, don't, you don't have a chance in hell of actually scoring on this play so we're just gonna not blow our whistle like we're not bailing you out here sorry and what what kicks Draymond a little bit higher in it is his reaction to not getting a call <laughs> is the the aggrievedness that the flops are ineffective is pretty fantastic 
Yeah, he's not as much of a defensive flop. No, though. I mean, no. he'll step in and take charges sometimes, but uh, he's just just deserve credit for just how terrible he actually is at it, despite trying it pretty regularly. Um, somebody, somebody else for me who, if we had done this, if we had done this podcast like three years ago, would have featured much more prominently than he does now is Blake Griffin. Griffin was just ridiculous at certain moments in his career for call seeking behavior. For I mean, incidentally, not 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 coincidentally, always when he was playing with Chris Paul, but he had a he had a lot more of that in his game then. I think that's toned down a little bit, maybe as he's kind of moved around the floor a little bit. But I remember a few years ago just going completely crazy. Yeah, his, I didn't mind as much because he was at least like going hard to the basket. It wasn't, and I think he fall into a, into a category of if there was some kind of thing where he got knocked down, he would really accentuate that and like really look like he would have been injured and stuff like that. Like that was more of a different kind of, uh, more accentuating the results, I thought than actually flopping initially but fair, fair it, enough. it's uh you know that's just my memory yeah it, i i, I remember point. i remember being angry at it moments of time but not as much the last couple of years also because i've had more sympathy with him with all the all the lower body stuff here's one who just he's got to be at least in my top five that i just can't stand it anymore is ricky rubio the be the tag man on the pick and roll and just jump in front of the guy who's just rolling to the basket and kind of just jogging through and not even looking and then just fall down in front of him or the you know big man trying to run the floor in transition looking back for the ball and stuff just completely not a basketball play in any way just guys aren't even involved in the play don't have the ball where you're just all you're doing you're not trying to stop the guy it's not making any kind of legitimate effort it's just hoping the referee blows his whistle um he does a little bit of the call seeking behavior on the offensive end but he's just he's not enough of a threat that people are really like pressing up on him to where he can get those calls a lot of times and but it's really those off the ball flops by him that i just just get rid of those for god's sake nba it shouldn't be a surprise to me that back when i was more of a prospect in list my top two point guard prospects of all time were chris paul and ricky rubio and that both of those guys as they aged became just bullshit artists because they knew how to do it and like they thought about the game in that way it's it's not a surprise at all and i'm, I'm glad that you brought him up and rubio's it feels like it's gotten more egregious over the last couple of years especially as his defense has waned that it's just a bigger it's a bigger part of his repertoire now than it used to be which makes it more frustrating uh, somebody that we have that of course it will feature prominently in the overall discussion especially when you fold in call seeking behavior is James Harden Harden one of the few players in the league who is who is a super a bona fide superstar who also makes a cottage industry out of call seeking behavior who is innovated like Chris Paul has in, in a bunch of different ways and what makes Harden <laughs> so special in this is that he is great at drawing genuine contact and great at accentuating and exaggerating and flopping off of off of and not off of that genuine contact that makes him basically impossible to referee and that is that's what makes him like that's what makes him really special to me is that yeah he really only does it on one end he does flop a little bit on defense but not nearly as much but the way that it fits together with the more skill-based parts of his game is just insane you know Harden I'm kind of of two minds of because he does legitimately get fouled a lot yes um and he also I, I mean he'll and I don't like how do you feel about like the Harden extend the arms go through the arms of the guy who has his arms out who's going for the strip that one I don't mind as much because you're taking advantage of someone trying to make a play on you that's going to be a foul they're trying to take the ball away from you so you're you're that's a legitimate basketball play you're trying to make a move yeah you're sticking your arms out and accentuating that a little bit 
but uh, they're actually doing something that could actively that could lead to a foul what kills me about him though is and his step back three-pointer is very much i think reliant on the threat of him falling down and drawing a three-shot foul especially because it seems like he even has tweaked his shooting motion a little bit to despite stepping back somehow landing with his feet forward of where he takes off from and if you look at his shooting motion from a few years ago it's not quite the same as that i don't know whether he is actually intentionally tried to refine his motion so he jumps forward but as the rule is written if you jump forward and you land on someone's foot uh, it's still a foul on them so a big part of how he's made that step back three-pointer so unguardable is because everyone is terrified at getting a three-shot foul on him because of the flopping that he is able to do and paul also uh, and harden also like i think we could also tie in lou williams here somebody who was so egregious yeah. at what he, he, he at, basically created the field contact on the perimeter and throw it yeah up. He's from, the first from that, from that playoff it. series yeah well i mean he was doing it back in like 13 14 yeah he even. was doing I mean, it before that but yeah. that series was ruined by it so so horribly yeah. that they yeah, had you're to change about the, the rule the, the OKC 16, series. 17 yeah series against okc right yeah 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 it really became an epidemic at, at that point he was one of the, especially just going to his left uh just any kind of contact he weighs about a buck 60 he just throw it up he actually can even make that shot pretty regularly uh his 17 footer after he gets bumped going to his left uh yeah no certainly he's a a, a very important person i i, I think we, he may if not top three he would certainly have to be a finalist ursan Ilyasova, who draws in some seasons he's drawn charges at a rate double the next highest person and that's because anytime someone drives to the basket he will jump in front of that person and fall down i wish i had more information on how often he actually succeeds in drawing a charge as opposed to a blocking foul but i mean he and mike budenholzer have been together at various points in the last few years and now in this buck system where the ethos is defend the rim at all costs will give up three pointers as long as it's not in the corner and he's usually guarding a big so he's not guarding someone in the corner uh it's just a marriage made in hell <laughs> because at least hell for the viewer because every time he comes in every stint he's gonna have three or four times where he's flopping to draw a charge I, i'm pretty much tapped out on my on my main ones i can of course comment on yours but is there anybody else that stands out oh as john paul jones said we have not yet begun to fight <laughs> but we'll do that first i think that was john paul jones that the american frigate captain from the revolutionary war in any event hopefully that's not like the led zeppelin someone from led zeppelin uh i'll i'll run through some of these i don't, I don't have anyone i think who is going to be a top candidate well oh how have you not mentioned kyle lowry though well see you i think i think of lowry as kind of a different yeah that's he's he's worth mentioning i had him in the same thing as Ilyasova, like takes a lot of contact and does sell it sometimes but i think you and i see that a little bit differently well especially on his drives i mean he he's right up there for not only is he just gonna feel some contact and get knocked off his path and barf up a shot but he'll just go down look like he got shot or got tripped and just like roll on the ground roll into the legs of other players it's and, and it's only gotten worse this year i found as he's had the ball more and he, he he can't really finish as well as he used to he used to be a great finisher inside so he's relying on that so much more but yeah i mean his signature play other than doing taking charges where he's probably like one of the biggest guard charge takers as well is the drive into the lane feel some contact and then just like fall down right about the dotted line and then just like roll on the ground into somebody's legs that's his like his signature move no i i, I think lowry is a is an excellent candidate for the top five few others 
Danilo Gallinari. Yep. I mean, if we were making a positional team, he'd probably have to be the starting power forward. Just, he can't really jump that well anymore and finish, but just any drive. He is one of the best, actually, at flopping for contact, like, right at the basket. Um, So he's at least driving to the basket and getting there. But most of the time, he's not even trying to finish. He's just trying to draw the foul on a lot of these plays. And he'll do he'll do some of the stuff like pump faking and stuff in the perimeter. I mean, I think the, the pump fake, get the guy in the air, and then draw the foul, I don't really think of that as... as falling into this category as yeah, much same here uh somebody that i know a lot of people think and and he does flop sometimes but to me it's the the flop to legitimate contact ratio is is far different than a lot of the players on this list is lebron like braun ha- does have some really high high attention ones because everything he does is high attention but i don't think of him in the same category because flopping isn't a big part of his game though he has some spectacularly egregious ones well, I think it's it's more again the when he legitimately gets fouled trying to draw the flagrant. That's where I, I think you know people talk about him being a flopper more so back in his Miami days when everyone hated him. I actually think just in the normal course of play, it's very rare that he'll do the I'm on, the only reason I'm doing this is to draw foul. He doesn't really do the rip move. He drives to the basket to score. He doesn't like feel contact and barf up a shot necessarily. I actually had him on my list of the players who flopped the least other than just that one area of once he has gotten fouled and legitimately knocked down going to the basket then you'll see him stay down for a while really try to get a flagrant foul review that's probably the only he, thing he that also, I really think of Braun also baited maybe one of the most important fouls in NBA history with with Draymond Green in the 2016 finals that's true yeah maybe I'm being too nice to him but in um, some ways, like the the thing with the thing with Draymond, you know, as somebody who was, I believe I was in the building for that. I th- yeah, it was, I was. Um, is that it, like he brought it up, but Dray- like he opened the door, but Draymond definitely walked through it. So it was it was a little yes. bit of both. A few others that I think it deserves some mention: Aaron Baines. He will definitely draw contact a lot, but you know, I'm sorry, Aaron. I don't believe that 190 pound Steph Curry just knocked you down on the play where Steph Curry broke his hand. And again, this is, uh, to be clear, since uh, a lot of Suns fans and Australians got really mad at me for hating Aaron Baines, he's responding to the incentives that he has given. But he absolutely is flopping and allowing himself to be knocked down like a wet noodle uh, when these little guards come down the lane. I mean, he's not generally going to block shots, so he looks to take charges or maybe use verticality with his chest, but he plays a very high contact style with a a lot of flopping um marco bellinelli has become less prominent these days but he was definitely uh, especially on jump shots he's probably the foremost practitioner of the stick the leg out uh, which he'll do a lot of times on jump shots going to his right that's supposed to be an offensive foul but a lot of times just isn't called anthony tolliver is on the fringes now but he was one of the the biggest charge takers uh, and floppers jj barea you mentioned him uh he can get the uh lifetime achievement award for this group well, right and, now and we can mention the other jj jj reddick was a was a flopper at moments in his career too that's true yes he did acquire that reputation at duke demarcus cousins another guy we haven't seen much of lately but he's one of the biggest floppers in the nba another one of these 280 pound dudes who just gets knocked over uh with even a whiff of, of someone opening a door at the other end of the arena and jimmy butler you mentioned him he is driving for to sell contact more and more these days Uh, you talked about his free throw rate being extremely high and two more guys that i think still have to be in there kevin love 
<laughs> Dark is, arts. Yeah, he is one of the biggest guys of the, I'm going to intentionally, like, not even try to score in the post, but just, especially when he has someone who's actually his size that he just can't back down. And we saw this more in the playoffs the last couple of years. But he'll just do the, I'm going to bring my left arm as I go for a right-handed jump hook. I'm just going to bring my left arm up underneath your arm uh, and then just like throw the ball up in the air and make it look like you fouled me. Um, Every once in a while, that would get called. And I think Mark Davis uh, had a a hero's moment one time where he he didn't fall (laughs) for that and give him the call. It also doesn't count within this, but as kind of a, another thing that goes in his favor here, love is, um, love is one of the, not the most egregious, but one of the more egregious illegal screeners, which is another thing that players do to deceive referees. Yes. Um, and, and he's also the get the guy in the air and like jump way sideways. Uh, he, he was a big one he's, of that. He's, he's maybe that. my most frustrating player with that, like breaking your shooting yeah. motion to to draw a call. Paul Millsap uh, on both ends, the get the ball on the left baseline, try to drive along the baseline, feel contact, and throw up a shot when you're behind the backboard and, and expect two free throws. And he's also a big defensive flopper as well uh, with taking some charges. And all right, I, I think that's it. Um, okay, your number three guy was Marcus Smart, you said? I actually moved Marcus Smart to number to number two and put Harden at three because I felt sympathetic to the argument that he draws so much legitimate contact that flopping is a smaller part of what he does. So I moved hard into three. I mean, you could make my top three. I think I, I put them in all in, in all different orders at various moments in time. But I went with Harden at three in the final version. You know, I'm not sure that I could reward Harden. He just doesn't have enough flopping versatility for me. We we need more. Uh, so see, that's something Marcus Smart has in spades. Yeah, go, going for loose balls. We we need some of that defensively. Harden just like isn't involved enough to really do a lot of flopping there. Um, you know, he doesn't do the field contact and throw up a shot from 17 feet that often either. Um, it's mostly just uh, the go through the guy's arms, which I don't really count that much in this. And then the three shot fouls are, are the major ones at this point for him. Um, he's just like, he's also just not irritating enough o- overall to me. Um, I'm going to go with Marcus Smart actually as my number one because he's really the only person who gets the kind of like the crazy separation on his flops. Right? Like his, are the, just, his are the most athletic for sure. Yes, the, he, most is, aer- he is just like aerobat- launching himself. Like, he is launching himself away, doesn't care about his own body. He'll s- slam his head into the metal seats next to the court. He'll fall on his tailbone. Whatever it takes to try and sell a call, uh, he is just launching himself away from the scene of the crime like he was just shot out of a cannon. It's just incredible. I put him at number two and Chris Paul at number one because Paul, he, he has a variety of things that fit within the broader umbrella that we're using for this podcast of like all the other non-basketball crap that that he pulls and, you know, like st- stopping stopping with a guy who's trailing him, what it's like not even, and, and especially because of the way he ratchets it up when, when, it, when they become shooting fouls, even though it's a non-shooting foul, that I, I think that yeah. it's... There's an intentionality. Yes. And a... a uh, a ruthlessness and a cynicism to yeah, the flopping I, I think, of Chris I think Paul. there's there's that sort of an there's an analogous thing sort of with that and with James Harden. Harden is doing it to draw legitimate contact. Chris Paul is that sort of cynicism, but for illegitimate contact. And so I think that's part of why he's number one. Yeah, I mean I think if you had to say if you had to do who has the highest 
bullshit foul to real foul ratio in the nba chris paul has the highest of that i would say yeah and that's that's pretty much why he's number like marcus smart he's in there he's a physical player he's mixing it up like he actually is getting fouled chris paul is not just legitimately getting fouled at all he is intentionally trying to draw fouls and that's how he's getting fouled so uh smart i mean he's so spectacular that i just i I had to reward him but paul is a a very strong number two well and and for chris paul i mean you talked about very few of them are legitimate i agree with you he's still getting to the line four times a game (laughs) it's incredible and i mean it's been that way pretty much since he was with the clippers i mean it, it's it's remarkable in his 30s he's just still that guy and my number three is gonna be kyle lowry uh, for all, all the reasons that we talked about yeah um, you're, you're much more aggrieved by charge by charge drawing than i am because I, I i don't know like for me sometimes i have i have a harder time drawing the line between what was legitimate falling over and what wasn't but yeah i mean that's yeah. that's reasonable well, though but well, well the also the it's really the offensive uh, foul drawing that is ramped up to a new level and I'll, this, in these last yeah couple that's of true years. i'll say I, I only went for three but my fourth would be lou williams because it hasn't been as prominent Certainly. for me this year but i mean just it was such, again like chris paul and a few of the other guys it's such a big part of his game very good player i mean a lot of i mean yeah. i love almost all these guys i had two of them on my uh, two of the top three on my olympic team for and to consider the third but it's it's just it's a part of it yeah i mean you just got a bunch of one-way guys on on your team danny you're never you're never gonna beat me we have so much versatility uh, on my squad to just we can flop all over the court you're only doing it on one end you're, you're uh it's just yet another commentator who only cares about offense do you want to turn- all right let, let, yeah go ahead you here. want to turn to the non-floppers i thought of originally i thought of two players in particular um one chicago native Derek rose like I yes think Der- that's a great one he was on my list too i, I think Derek, like Derek rose you could argue is the player whose career has been most influenced by not flopping because he just hits the ground so damn hard and never does anything to like to to try to mitigate it that it's and and it's it's all that sort of stuff i, fe- I wish he flopped more well and he's so quick too i mean he could do the feel contact and throw it up bullshit yeah like, can you imagine I mean, but can you imagine trey young's like mentality in Derek rose's body i mean it would have been an unwatchable player but it would have been a really effective one i mean rose is one of the last of the generation of players who grew up playing basketball on outdoor courts and he did that in chicago and his game is like that because in chicago i mean it depends where you, where you play pickup but definitely in chicago if you call foul and you make the bucket bucket doesn't count so you have to and the idea is we are not allowing you to call a foul we want to discourage you from calling a foul unless it's like really legitimate otherwise play on and so a lot of his moves where he just it does all these double pumps avoid contact like you can tell that he grew up playing that way as opposed to with a bunch of referees that we're going to try and bait and I mean he did improve his foul drawing years ago to get into the MVP conversation I remember Hollinger actually wrote a, a call about how this is one of the reasons why he's like not really at that much of an all-star level and then basically as soon as that column was written he started drawing more fouls but yeah he's never been one that he's definitely in the top five for me um another one I'd say is Clay Thompson yeah I mean, his coaches have been trying to get him to do the pump fake, get guys in the air, get to the foul line for years, and he's basically doesn't do that. He's not really a big charge taker either. You know, he's he's gonna stand up, play, try to stay solid. Um, Kyrie Irving very rarely yes. flops. Another guy with a low free throw rate. You could argue again that he should be trying to do that more because he is able to create separation, but he's more about the spectacular finishes. He's not really going in there trying to draw contact. Someone who I, I really 
really wanted the other guy. I said I had two guys that I immediately thought of. The other one is Stephen Adams, and Adams gets a special place because he instigates so much and doesn't flop much. Like that's it's an unusual combination where he gets under a guy's skin. Joel Embiid does the same thing, but he doesn't really flop. Part of it's because it, it wouldn't really be that credible. He's just such a big dude. It's toned in. He's shaded in a little bit over the last two years, but he's still like for a player who's in who's in the muck as much as he is. He doesn't flop much. Another one that came to mind for me was Giannis. Yeah. Um, now he's drawing a lot of offensive fouls, but like, and granted, when you have the the most physically dominant game, you don't necessarily need to rely. Well, that's on flopping. that's like Shaq didn't flop because like who the hell would have believed it? <laughs> hey, I mean Joel Embiid flops though. Joel Embiid has a huge physical advantage. That's true. on people too. Another one I would say a point guard, uh, Drew Holiday. Yes, he just I mean again to his detriment, that guy is so strong. He will just go through you at the rim every time. And I mean it's kind of annoying to me. Like he gets fouled a lot, but he. He's so strong that he's just able to power through the contact. He doesn't embellish it and he doesn't get calls. I mean, to me, he gets to the rim and gets contact and not legitimate straight up contact either. Guys jumping into him, but it's just they bounce off of him. And so it looks like he's not getting fouled, but he, he really is. And it's, uh, I think he deserves a lot more calls from playing the right way uh, that he just doesn't get it. It's, again, it just... The ratio of fouls that come from call-seeking behavior versus just trying to play the game the right way and getting impeded, I think it really just, in an overall sense, I wish the NBA would look at that. Another point guard who also played under John Calipari, like Derek Rose, I always think John Wall could have got, could have drawn more fouls and didn't really sell as much. You know, not to the same extent as Derek Rose, but I, I always thought of him as a player who could have benefited from that. We haven't seen him in a while, obviously, but I, I, I think of him as well. Um... This is one where it's probably just more a criticism of his game. Nick Vucevic. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't tell Nick... Please don't tell Vucevic to flop more. I just feel like that's going to be a problem. I, I mean, I, I think he just needs to like play a little stronger with it with that big yeah. body instead of like the quick flip jump hooks. Uh, CJ McCollum. Uh, I mean, a lot of these guys have low free throw rates. Yeah, I was thinking but, like for um, me, Lillard. Lillard hits the he hits the floor more now, but I I don't think there's much call seeking behavior. He just gets he just gets hit on drives a lot. Um, Andre Iguodala is a funny one. He almost never actually falls you, you, you down. You mean you mean Andre Iguodala, who who might have the chase down block might have happened because he didn't want to draw a foul <laughs> yeah well there's that aspect on the offensive end and then on the defensive end he'll just kind of he's not willing to like let himself get knocked down uh like the play that comes to mind for me is game three of the 2016 or uh yeah 2016 first run where Harden ends up hitting the the shot to go ahead and he was guarding Harden and he just kind of like let Harden knock him back and he'll just sort of like backpedal and look over at the referee and put his arms up and be like, I mean, come on, come on. You're not going to call this? Come on. And of course, because he doesn't fall down, they never call it. But he's he's not willing to actually fall down. I, I appreciate it's, that about it, it. It's so interesting to me that Chris Paul, you know, Chris Paul and Andre Drudala, both very intelligent players, both, you know, very physically dominant at one time in different ways and now less so, that Paul went into the flopper realm and Iguodala did not because it would have suited him so so well had he done that and he just didn't. Um, yeah, Carm- well, well, Andre, I think he, it's like, whereas Paul is just like, all right, I'd, I'm going to work within this system to just do, uh, to win the best that I can. If I have to fool the referees, if I have to sell out my integrity, so be it. Whereas Andre is just like, eh, this isn't, this isn't that important. I'm going to just play the right way, the way that I want to play. And l- let's, let's try to win. But like, I'm not, I'm not going out of my way to just like impress the referees here. It's like, it's like anathema to his personality to be doing stuff that, uh, 
just to please the referees, essentially. Somebody else I, I thought of is Carmelo Anthony. Like, Melo, just, he, he would jaw to the refs, but he never really sold much. And I never, yeah. I never thought of him as a flopper. All right, well, this was fun. Please stay tuned. Going to do the daily COVID-19 roundup, and it'll be me. And then uh, a special guest, my mom, is making the podcast debut to talk about insurance for business owners in the time of COVID-19. Also an announcement that we are going to be spinning that podcast off probably within the next week or so into a separate feed so that people can just get it there. We'll keep running it in this feed for a little bit longer, but for those of you who didn't want to listen to it, now it's not in the same thing, even though we're running it afterwards, you could have just stopped. But uh, I hope that you will keep your eyes peeled for that. Subscribe to that new podcast and tell your friends about that as well so let's uh, talk about those issues right now okay we'll start off with another solo edition here as we go through the news so those of you who are able to and want to support this program best way to do that patreon.com slash duncan larue there's a link to that in the show notes and we'll start here in the U.S., where we are now nearing 200,000 cases. By the time you listen to this, we may be over that. The news remains, unfortunately, quite grim. A U.S. mayor's survey noted the following. 91.5% of the over 200 cities polled do not have an adequate supply of face masks for their first responders, including police, fire, and EMTs, plus medical personnel. 86% of those cities do not have an adequate supply of PPE. 92% do not have an adequate supply of test kits. 85% do not have an adequate supply of ventilators for use by health facilities in their area. 62% have not received any emergency equipment or supplies from their state. And of those receiving help from their state, 85% say that that help is not adequate to meet their needs. So it seems like basically all of the major urban areas in the U.S. are going to be experiencing shortfalls, at least of those responding to the survey. I didn't see San Francisco in there, but most of the other major cities in the U.S. were included in this U.S. mayor's survey. And hope for relief from the federal government, not looking too good right now. The New York Times reporting, among other outlets, that according to an administration official, the federal government's stockpile of masks, gloves, and gowns is nearly empty. FEMA has distributed almost 12 million N95 masks, 5.2 million face shields, 22 million gloves, and 7,100 ventilators. There's a tiny slice of PPE left over that's being reserved for the first responders in the federal government. But the well is run dry here with regard to these essential munitions in the fight against the coronavirus. And it is unclear when more supplies will be available or where they will come from other than some trickling in as what seem like kind of PR gifts from China and Russia right now. And I haven't seen any type of a timeline on when we might be able to start producing these items domestically. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis finally ordered the state's over 21 million residents to largely stay at home. That occurred after he had a telephone call with President Trump and the governors of Georgia, Mississippi, and Nevada, some of those holdouts that we had discussed on previous episodes, also announced plans for stay-at-home orders. And now 290 million people in 37 states and Washington, D.C. are under those stay-at-home orders or will be in the very near future. DeSantis noted that he started 
started coming around to the necessity of a statewide order once the White House dropped its suggestion that physical distancing measures could be listed or lifted, I should say, by mid-April. That order will take effect on Thursday at midnight. And worth noting the demographics of Florida, third most populous state in the U.S., a quarter of the population is older than 60, well-known, of course, as a retirement destination. Some good news on the physical distancing front. The Washington Post utilized data from the Transit app to note that activity is about 30% of normal on mass transit. Now, is that enough to really quell the spread of the virus? Are people able to distance on mass transit, how many people are using masks? You see photos from mass transit in a lot of these urban areas where about half the people are wearing masks. So time is going to tell whether we maybe even need to do more. Certainly in China, there were even more restrictive measures. Wuhan, for example, completely closing its subway, not allowing people to leave their homes at all. So we don't know yet how effective these measures are. Some Im indications in Seattle and the Bay Area, which were some of the earliest areas in the country to lock down, that there is effectiveness to these physical distancing measures. But do we need to go even further to really get that are not down more tough to say my hope certainly is that what we've done has been enough also some indications to that effect in a new york times article that used data from the company kinsa which is a internet connected thermometer company that in the past had shown the ability to predict where flu infections were on the rise due to people's temperatures rising that data Mildly encouraging, showing that increased temperatures are on the wane. And again, some of that temperature information did presage some of the coronavirus outbreaks before people are presenting and needing care to actually be judged as cases or, or requiring hospitalization. I wanted to give you all a little bit more information on how the small business loans under the CARES Act, which is what they, they call the $2 trillion stimulus overall, $349 billion of that allocated to small business loans. They are intended to apply to costs incurred by small businesses from February 15th through June 30th. They are initially setting the loan rate at 0.5%, but it could be increased perhaps to as much as 4%. That is the cap, but as of now, 0.5%. I can't think of any reason why that rate would be increased as of now, but it it is theoretically possible. For the payment schedule, the repayment is due six months after the loan begins and the full loan will be due after two years. Something that I was very interested in is just how is this going to be applied for and processed? The application has been posted on the Treasury Department's CARES Act resource page. You gather the information for the application form and then you contact your bank or an approved lending institution. So it appears that banks will be the ones actually administering these loans. The loans are expected to be handled on a first come first serve basis. And obviously, if you're someone who is trying to get one of these loans, there are a lot more resources out there, starting with that Treasury Department webpage, the Small Business Administration. This is just intended more as a, a general understanding for people who may not actually be getting these loans. They are to apply to any business for which current economic uncertainty makes the loan necessary to support your ongoing operations. Small businesses, self-employed individuals, independent contractors, and sole proprietors are also eligible. The company must have been in business as of February 15th to qualify for a loan. These loans can be up to $10 million to cover payroll and certain other expenses, or 2.5 times your total payroll expenses for the loan period. 
The program also includes loan forgiveness, covering costs for the first eight weeks of the loan for companies who are able to keep employees on payroll or continue paying bills through the coronavirus crisis. So again, lots more regulations to this. I appreciate everyone who must have just been working incredibly hard to actually get this bill written, get these regulations written, administer all of this stuff. It really just uh, must have been an incredible amount of work for all of these new programs that are coming on it line. We've been on this story for a few days now on the high number of pending tests in California. The Atlantic got to the bottom of that. The issue is with a private company called Quest Diagnostics. They and LabCorp are the two biggest private testing companies in the country. I'm sure if you ever had a medical test done, it might well have been through them. And they have really struggled to scale up their operations in California. But the problem was they're still accepting these samples and, of course, getting paid for them. So the big issue that that causes is it's causing hospitals to burn through way more PPE than they need to because if you have a patient in the hospital waiting for results on a COVID test, perhaps even in the hospital for some reason other than COVID-19, but maybe presents with some symptoms or just they would like to test them out of abundance of caution because you can't have healthcare workers getting sick or having it get spread around the hospital to the non-COVID patients. So you take this test and then if you have to wait five days, 10 days, to get the test results, now every time you interact with that patient, you have to use PPE. And so if that gets spread out over a five-day period instead of a 24-hour period, now you're wasting a lot more of these precious resources that we just don't have, unfortunately. And obviously there are many other negative effects from that as well, but that's one that stuck out to me as, as one that I hadn't thought of beforehand. And even if you think about it as, okay, now this provider has to spend all the time to put the PPE on again, it's just a, a massive amount of effort that's required to deal with someone. And so that means that the time of health professionals is going to be more limited. The U.S. Navy has had its own problems. A letter was leaked to the media from the captain of the aircraft carrier, Theodore Roosevelt, a scathing letter asking for stronger measures to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Now they're going to be trying to offload as many as 2,700 sailors from that ship in Guam. 93 personnel on the ship have tested positive and while the Secretary of the Navy did push back at the comparison between an aircraft carrier and a cruise ship, hopefully the military would have a better ability to prevent the spread. And this is still 6,000 people on an aircraft carrier in very confined quarters. And there are a number of ships uh, which are in similar straits right now in the Navy. New York continues to be the worldwide epicenter of the coronavirus and one stat that stuck out to me today, this was noted in a Bloomberg article, that about one in five hospitalizations in New York are occurring in people under age 44. That's according to data released by the city health department. And according to the WHO, as we've talked about on previous episodes, moderate to severe cases have occurred in 10 to 15% of adults under age 50. Unclear exactly how that would correlate with hospitalization rates, but you'd imagine that there's quite a bit of overlap there. And the reason that stuck out to me is that many have suggested this idea of, well, you know, why can't we just sequester those who are vulnerable and those who aren't? can continue working, keeping the economy open. The issue there is that we would have so many cases, even just among people under 50 in that case, that we still would have a completely overwhelmed health system. 
in addition to the fact that you don't want people to die. So yet another statistic, I, I think it seems that most people who are listening to this now uh, understand why we needed to do these extreme measures, but that's uh, one more stat that would hopefully point you in that direction. More on just the nature of this virus. And we've focused quite a bit in the last few days on asymptomatic cases and news coming out today that the cdc director says that up to 25 percent of people may have no symptoms and that really would be consistent with the number which has been between 10 and 50 percent we've seen in other places we saw with those lost 43,000 asymptomatic people in china that weren't part of the official data a number of other analysis another data point on that the diamond princess cruise ship one of the first hotspots for the virus but also a, a good source of data because it's one of the few ecosystems where everyone was actually tested, including those who are asymptomatic. And about 18% of people on the Diamond Princess never developed symptoms. Worth noting that the passengers on that cruise ship tended to be older and more likely to develop symptoms. And then another group of researchers in Hong Kong, they suggested based on Chinese data that from 20 to 40% of transmissions in China occurred before symptoms appeared. That's another part of this. Number one is, are you asymptomatic? Number two is, what is your chance of transmitting the virus before you become symptomatic and then know that you should be isolating yourself? And some of the data that we've gone over in past episodes indicating that there's quite a bit of transmission in those last couple of days before you become symptomatic. If you do become symptomatic or even from people who are remain asymptomatic the whole time. Also, you'll hear this idea of being asymptomatic and then the people who it is found have transmitted disease when they're supposedly asymptomatic. They think back and they're like, yeah, you know, I guess I did kind of have a sore throat. And so asymptomatic, does that mean you feel nothing? I mean, every, everybody's body is different as far as what you are feeling as opposed to you know what your actual viral load is. And Ben and I have talked about this a lot, this idea of whether it is an airborne virus or not, but clearly it spreads through the air, whether that is in the form of microscopic droplets or not. While it has been an academic debate, it seems like a distinction without a difference in terms of how you actually need to be handling prophylactic measures for the transmission of the virus. Now, another thing that was noted by an expert, uh, Dr. Benjamin Cowling, an epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong, if you are simply jogging past someone, walking past someone, you're breathing, you're not talking, that doesn't have a very high transmission rate. His quote was, if you have passing contact with an infectious person, you would have a very, very low chance of transmission occurring. It's when you're together in an enclosed space for a period of time. Some of the guidelines have noticed that close contact is 15 minutes or more. If it's something that you are having a face-to-face -face conversation with, there's this somewhat chilling animation of just the airflow when you're having a conversation with someone. And that flow obviously has potentially transmissible virus within it. And Dr. Cowling was a part of that group that uh, estimated that between 20 and 40% of transmission events in China occurred before the symptoms appeared. In that same vein, a new article from The Lancet which I guess this qualifies as good news relative to some of what we've been hearing. It estimated that the actual rate of death counting asymptomatic cases is 0.66%. That's lower than some earlier estimates, many of which were in the 1%, 1.5% range. 
But that's taking into account these asymptomatic cases. And if you have 1% of symptomatic cases, and then you throw in another 10 to 50% of cases that are asymptomatic, that's what knocks you down into that 0.6%, 0.7%. But worth noting here that this is under optimal conditions, right? We noted uh, a couple of days ago that an emergency room doctor noting that there's about a 50% survival rate when patients are put on a ventilator. So if you don't have a ventilator, it's fair to say that your chances of perishing from this disease are probably going to double. Um, and this ultimately gets back to the question, though, that people have been talking about for months now with this is just what's the denominator? You don't know exactly how many people have this. You haven't done serological testing, which is, uh, for those who missed that, that is the testing of the population to determine how many of them have had the virus and now have antibodies reflecting that and hopefully are are immune there's going to be more research on that coming no doubt of what uh, immunity is conferred by having had the virus and recovering so we're all just doing estimates here that's why why we're going through this to get an idea of based on the number of symptomatic cases to try to model out how many people actually have this a lot of people have done, done work on okay well if there's this incubation period of on average from five to seven days and then you have a, another seven days before you're on average going to present to the hospital if you're a severe case and just to say okay well the problem is you're looking back two weeks in time right most of the people who are in severe shape right now they were getting infected march 18th march 19th on average so this is uh, with all of these difficulties in detection and then the inadequate testing as well you got to do a lot of legwork to try to figure out what the true state of things is right now finish up here with some news around the world getting back to this asymptomatic cases thing we've been on this for a couple of days in china they have decided now that they will be counting asymptomatic cases in the official total it appears clear now based uh, in part on reporting from Kaishin, I think that's how it's pronounced, C-A-I-X-I-M, that there is not going to be an acknowledgement of those 43,000 asymptomatic cases from before. This is just people who are asymptomatic and have the virus and are being quarantined right now. So hopefully this will be lead to more reliable data going forward. A study going back to February 12th in the Chinese Journal of Epidemiology suggested that asymptomatic individuals were only 1.95% of all lab-confirmed infections. There, That seems way, way too low. And remember, too, that the Chinese definition, even of a case, has changed. They had a day where the cases shot up because they didn't have enough testing. They started actually doing x-rays, CT scans of people's lungs and seeing a, a characteristic blotches on the lungs and i believe this study came out before then uh kaishin says that according to data that it obtained 25 percent of individuals in the Heilongjiang province on february 26th were asymptomatic so 25 percent of those that again much closer to the numbers that we have seen in terms of these asymptomatic cases also a bloomberg report claiming based on a leaked U.S. intelligence document. Now, it wasn't clear to me that Bloomberg had actually seen this document. It seemed like the contents of the document were leaked to Bloomberg, that China has concealed the extent of the coronavirus outbreak, according to U.S. intelligence, underreporting both total cases and deaths. And I certainly have no love for the Chinese regime. I think they have messed up a lot of things. I think undercounting the asymptomatic cases was pretty ridiculous in the official tally. I think that's something that really may have retarded a lot of efforts worldwide to prevent the spread. Obviously, the lack of reporting 
initially to get data to the higher ups, despite the fact that safeguards were implemented in after previous health crises like SARS, because essentially the local Communist Party bosses who weren't supposed to be involved, but just informally were, they didn't want to upset their superiors. So they didn't report the information that they had. They didn't want to believe it. So all that was really bad. There's been a lot of suppression of journalists. China has kicked out Western journalists uh, as well now in what may not be coincidental timing. So there are very, very many reasons to be suspicious of any of the reporting and statistics coming out of China. Still, though, I haven't seen enough evidence yet to conclude that the number of cases and deaths are just so much higher in China and that we just have have no idea about them. This report, when you think about stuff that gets leaked, you always have to say, well, what is the motivation for this getting leaked? And certainly there's been a PR battle between the U.S. and China. There have been plenty of failures on the part of both the U.S. and China and attempts to pin those on the other side so clearly there is a reason why this report w- would get leaked but no numbers were included it's just simply u.s the only piece of actual real information that's being reported is u.s intelligence thinks that they've undercounted the number of deaths and cases now is that are we talking about those forty-three thousand asymptomatic cases when you, they say under reporting the number of cases are there more than that how many more deaths are we talking about to me if it were some spectacular number that they was actually in this document like there was four times more deaths that absolutely would have been leaked to the media because that is a spectacular number that would get a lot more headlines and accomplish the purpose of the leaker. My personal best guess at what I think is going on is that yes, China has undercounted it, but I think it's in the ways that they think they can get away with and maybe the ways that even you know local party officials feel like they can get away with right if, if a guy already had a heart condition and his heart is weakened further due to coronavirus and he passes away and you've got some plausible deniability okay let's chalk that up to a heart attack that kind of thing as opposed to no we have five times the number of deaths here now if more information comes out i'm certainly willing to change my thought on that but I would think that at least some reports of it being so much worse than they claim would arise. And really the only piece of evidence that we've seen there so far are the reports that there are a lot more funeral urns outside of funeral homes in Wuhan. But we don't know whether that's just people who died of other things, whether those are coronavirus victims, that there are more of those urns than the supposed number of deaths. I mean, everyone who died out of other stuff, because there was a lockdown, their relatives weren't able to get their remains either. So I got to see more there. But I'm certainly not putting it past the Chinese government and many other governments, frankly, to fudge the numbers. But I think going to where it's really a massively significant number higher than what we're already talking about and the public figures, that might be a little bit too brazen even for them. Italy, 4,700 more new cases today. It had been a little bit lower than that, around 4,000 the last couple of days, but that's a good one to just keep monitoring. They are the first to go into lockdown, probably a decent predictor of what's going to happen in other Western countries who are behind them on the curve. But it is worth noting that you're still going to have transmission, unfortunately, within family units when people are quarantining at home and have the virus. And so there are going to continue to be new cases. And while it's not spreading throughout the entire population, I think all these countries you have to look at finding a place for people who have tested positive to shelter away from transmitting it 
to family members. It's definitely better to have everyone in place and not spreading it around the community and limiting the transmission within your own household, but that still is not ideal. And one Italian scientist, I, I can't remember his name, was saying that maybe that's part of the issue of why this hasn't come down as quickly as some people would hope, even though to just have the same number of cases every day is a massive improvement from the exponential growth that had been seen. Brazil President Jair Bolsonaro is coming under fire. He's basically the last notable world leader who is denying the severity of this crisis. He had a ridiculous quote that Brazilians can weather the pandemic because they can be dunked in raw sewage and they don't catch a thing. He is defying guidelines issued by his own health ministry, but visiting a commercial district in Brasilia. He's calling on all but elderly Brazilians to get back to work. As we noted earlier, the hospitalization rate is so high among even younger people that you're still going to overwhelm the health health system there and uh, he has been reputed by congressional leaders editorial boards the head of the supreme court telling them to ignore their own president and so we'll see if uh, further consequences uh, arise from this in the philippines uh, president rodrigo duterte again i am showing my massive ignorance of how to pronounce all of these world leaders names that i've only ever seen in print before because i don't watch cable news he has threatened very severe lockdowns his quote was my orders to the police and the military including to the village chiefs is that if a commotion breaks out and they put up a fight that puts your life in danger shoot them dead so with this uh, with the power grab in hungary very concerning to see despotic rulers using this crisis as a way to grab further power i'm all for reasonable enforcement of these physical distancing orders but this is uh not reasonable enforcement finally we can close on denmark for this segment at least which has had relative success in mitigating the effects of the coronavirus they're one of the first european countries to close their schools they impose strict limits on social gatherings close their borders uh, back on march 14th and there's some cautious optimism emanating from there now they've had 2500 confirmed cases 77 deaths but it sounds like the r naught is now half of what it was back in mid-March. The belief in Denmark is that because they acted more quickly, that's why things are more under control. So the Danish Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen, is expressing optimism that they'll be able to gradually start reopening things in the middle of the month, although she cautioned that Denmark's seniors would have to take precautions for a longer period of time. And if they are in fact able to reopen, they will be probably the first Western country to do that at all. They'll be a country to watch to see if uh, how that goes for them. So that's it for this segment, but we got a little bit more to talk about here still. Hi, mom. <laughs> Hi, Nate. <laughs> so this is uh, Jill Berkeley, my mom. I've never had my mom on the podcast before. I I'm sorry, mom. I, I can't say that I ever was thinking of coming to you for NBA basketball expertise, but this is a subject I thought you really could contribute on, which is the idea of businesses getting insurance coverage for the interruption that the coronavirus has caused. Well, and, and I'm sure actually that the number of podcasts I've listened to that you've given are equal to the times you've thought of having me as a guest. <laughs> That's right. I never get offended if people don't don't listen to my, my niche NBA podcast. I, I realize that it's not for everyone, but uh, this coronavirus stuff it is for everyone. And 
So for it's in the show description, but my mom has been practicing insurance law for over 40 years and I did it for a little while in much worse fashion than she did. And then I became a plaintiff's lawyer instead. So, but really one of the first things that popped out to me when I was thinking about how these businesses are going to manage with everything being shut down was, okay, well, is there insurance for this? So is there? Well, as you once very um, sagely noted um, when you were working as a lawyer, um, insurance is everywhere. Um, there, it, it takes a lot of different forms. And for this COVID-19 contaminations, work stoppage, um, business income loss, there may be insurance and there may not be insurance. So what are the types of insurance that might cover? I mean, why don't we just use a example of a small business, a restaurant, say, that now uh, has received an order from its state that is no longer allowed to operate. What are the coverages that they might have that could provide some reimbursement for this? All right. So from a pretty basic perspective, we're talking about the property insurance that a business has purchased to protect um, its own fixtures, um, its own ability to function um, in, in a very general way. You know, people can think of property insurance they bought if they had a fire um, or if they had a flood. Um, um, or if they had some weather-related um, damage. That's the property insurance that insures um, either the owned property or the leased property. So, you know, for restaurants, in fact, um, may not be as general um, a, an example because a lot of restaurants are tenant in the buildings um, that they're based in, but they're going to have property insurance for their tenancy as opposed to, let's say, a restaurant or a hotel that actually owns the real estate that they are operating under. And then they have property insurance for the structure. They have property insurance for the damage to um, the interior or personal property that's inside the, the, um, the building. And an endorsement on a property policy is... So, so an endorsement is just something that's at the end of the policy that... that uh, uh, no, no, sorry. Yeah. An endorsement is... Um, an additional coverage. Okay. So like when we're talking about property insurance, you get a, a basic policy that covers direct physical loss of or damage to covered property. And that's your that's your property coverage. And then you can endorse on or add on additional coverages, one of which is called business income loss or time element coverage. And that's where you find the what we're going to be talking about is business interruption coverage. But it's an additional coverage that commercial entities um, ask for. It's for small businesses. It's typically given um, just as a matter of course. You don't really have to fill out any kind of additional forms, really. When you know, when you buy property insurance, a lot of the time it's based on square footage and what kind of building materials your building is made out of and how old it is. Because there's this concept of if if the building were lost, if the structure were lost, or damage, how much does it cost to replace it? And that really becomes dependent upon how much does it cost to build a brick building that's X number of square feet. But business interruption is really doesn't have those same kind of limitations. Um, you 
you pick a dollar value for how much you think you want, you know, 100,000, 500,000, a million, um, you pick a deductible um, saying that you'll absorb the first X number of days or hours of loss. And that's pretty much all the insurance company asks. And so in your experience, the policies that you've seen, how many people does it seem like have opted for this coverage, which obviously it costs more money to have this coverage, but it, it seems like that's generally not one of the principal risks that it is being insured for though. Now, now it's going to be, but uh, how many of those policies that you've looked at in your experience have this type of coverage that we're talking about? Um, I would say that more uh, more um, businesses have this than don't. Yeah, and so, so the idea time element, uh, basically what you're referring to is just the time that you are not in business and covering for that loss. Is, is that, that's why it's called that? Yes, it, there's actually a lot of, as you can well imagine, you know, <laughs> terms of art in these policies. Um, in in time element coverage, you're, you're talking about what's called the period of restoration, um, which is from the point in time when your business is suspended or ceased until the time that it's up and running. And so that's the period of restoration during which you would be entitled to put a claim in for a variety of different kinds of damages. So we can talk about really there are two elements now to these people actually getting paid. I mean, number one is, well, is this loss caused by the coronavirus actually covered the second part will be okay if it's covered how much money do you actually get so let's talk about that first component here of whether these policies are going to cover it in our example of a a small business who has received an order from its state to close what's going to determine whether their policy actually covers these losses or not okay well i would say that there are a couple of different um considerations i mean the first is without any doubt the language in the policy um, and m- much in, in most of these policies you have some um, you know language that's uh, the same and in some policies you get more what's called manuscript so the actual language in a policy is going to be the first place that you really have to look um, the second place that you're going to have to look um, in terms of figuring out how that language is interpreted is a state-by-state case law review. So insurance is one of those um, legal issues that differs in every different state. And so every state has its own um, legislation about insurance and every state has its own case law about insurance. And what you might find in California in terms of interpreting some of the language in the policy could be different from how a court or a legislature in Washington interprets it. So you're going to also need to have what we, you know, kind of a jurisdictional analysis. And I think the third place um, that you're going to see, um, you need to understand is right now, a lot of legislatures, um, the ones I know of are on the East Coast, um, New Jersey, Massachusetts, um, maybe I think Ohio also, where the legislatures are passing statutes um, that 
that are going to determine whether an insurance company can uh, use an, an exclusion, a virus exclusion, let's say, um, where they're they're declaring that those may be void and against public policy. So in order to answer the question that you asked about, is it covered or not covered, it, it's a multi-step process. And I think the, the one other thing I want to say, and, and maybe this is a good takeaway for the you know our summary, is that what we know today may not be what happens tomorrow in this um, in, in this issue that right now um, I'd say everything is up for grabs. There's new lawsuits being filed every day in different jurisdictions. There's new theories. There's new um, creative ideas about what may or may not be covered. And as you can well imagine, um, the battle lines are going to be drawn um, in a very um, strong way where the insurers are going to take whatever positions they can to fight against coverage and the policyholder bar is going to use whatever resources and creativity they have uh, to overcome those issues. Yeah, I think uh, it's, I mean, just from a business standpoint, insurers, at least in my experience, if the exposure is big enough, whether they have a legal leg to stand on or not, and I'm not saying that they don't in this case to deny coverage, it's just, it's always good business sense to deny coverage for an insurance company if the exposure is big enough. Well, and it's just not good. I mean, it's also that they might fervently believe that Oh, sure. Uh, their policies weren't written to cover this. Now, the, the other thing that I, I want to make sure that your listeners understand is that um, looking at a typical business income loss policy, the very first hurdle you have is to prove that your loss was caused by the direct physical loss of or damage to your property. And the insurers, many insurers, are just looking at at that, they have a knee-jerk reaction and to the claim that, hey, I closed my business because I was ordered to, not because my property suffered any specific loss or contamination. And well, so and they, if I can, can interrupt, I would imagine insurance companies would say like, hey, we sold you this property. It's a property policy. This is if some guy drives his car off the street into your restaurant and forces it to close. Like That's what this is written for, they're going to say, not for something like the coronavirus. Well, in terms of business income loss, they're going to say that for whatever reason you're, you've suffered a loss, it has to be tied to some physical loss or damage to your property, whether it's uh, you had to close down because of mold or you had to close down um, because of a, of a bomb um, you know, next door to your property um, so that your property was unsafe, that, that a very... Um, traditional view of giving owners business income coverage is kind of as an add-on to when there's already been a physical law. Now, I and so when I say that that's the first place that insurers are going to draw the line, um, at the same time, the insurers are also acknowledging that there have been many other instances where something like contamination um, that a civil authority has used as a reason to 
closed property has in fact been considered physical damage. So many insurers will take that first knee-jerk reaction for business income loss and say, hey, no physical property. On the other hand, when businesses are filing claims for their um, business income loss, they could easily make the argument that uh, we had to close because somebody contaminated might have been in our store. And that's an equal reason why we had to close um, in addition to the order from the state. Yeah, that seems like it'll be a, an interesting argument. And uh, even getting down to like, okay, was was there actually virus on these surfaces or not? I mean, you, we've seen these cases where it, it, it really does get down to something that esoteric sometimes. Well, and, and we saw that in the um, 9-11 cases where, you know, whole swaths of the city were closed down by um, civil ordinance. Um, some of those properties suffered direct damage and some didn't. But um, a decision was made in the court that there was enough physical damage in that neighborhood to mean that people could get over that initial hurdle. Yeah, that that seems like something that I, I would consider to be analogous. Obviously, I I think more like a, a policyholder <laughs> lawyer, but uh, I mean, you've you've been on both sides of the coin uh, at points in in your career. But yeah, it seems like that distinction is going to be a big crux of this of just you know whether there is physical damage or something that has previously been analogized to physical damage uh in the courts and and i have to say too that you know of the i don't know maybe half dozen cases that have already been filed in different jurisdictions one in new orleans and one in um yontville that's how you pronounce it yontville um yeah yontville yeah uh, uh, that, that's uh fr french laundry right french laundry um, um, and then there's also a, a one in Dallas today I saw, and there's a, uh, one in the Northern District of Illinois. Um, these are maybe test cases, not quite the right concept, but these are going to be um, prosecutions that are going to be watched, you know, by every um, business owner, and it's going to take resources to um, fight these insurance battles. I mean, the one of the issues for policyholders coverage lawyers all over the country in every kind of coverage cases that the insurers and their lawyers, you know, seem to have the biggest pockets to fight on the litigation front. And so for policyholders to take up this kind of fight is going to take a lot of legal power, a lot of great minds, a lot of creativity. Um, and it's unlikely that there's going to be one uniform result and it, or even um, very soon. Um, well, yeah yeah the good news is this will take years to sort out before a lot of a lot of people are going to get their money it seems like because uh i think insurance companies are not going to want to just pay these without some sort of a legal dec declaration that they're liable no well and and i think it's also in the in the um genes of insurance you know is that you have as we often say the right hand giveth the coverage but the left hand take it away um because there are also um the hurdle of exclusions um that if you actually got through the direct loss to physical property um coverage issue many property policies in fact have virus exclusions and 
and not all virus exclusions are created equally either. And so the language of a virus exclusion, if it exists, if it applies to the business income loss coverage, could be uh, give you a completely different outcome um, in one case versus another. Yeah, I was thinking about this just from an economic standpoint, when you're looking at a lot of these potentially small businesses, I'm sure large corporations will be having the same arguments with their insurers as well. But it would be nice if we could just get a legislative solution to this where, okay, this is instead of waiting for the courts to go through and then it gets appealed and then you you have decisions and that takes years before you actually get to a point where there's some guidance on interpretation of all this, if there would just be, as you were talking about with just those virus exclusions potentially being found to be against public policy in some of those Eastern legislatures, if there could be a legislative solution to this uh, in states that could save everyone a lot of time, it seems like, and actually help some of these business owners get uh, the money that they uh, could potentially be entitled to under the policy at a time when it'll actually help them. Well, but don't you think that the whole care package and the federal government stepping in is an effect to save the insurance industry from going bankrupt as well as, yeah. you know, the normal businesses? I mean, if, if you had to look to the insurance industry to um, fund and finance the recovery of every small business that has a claim, we wouldn't have an insurance industry either yeah that's true i mean this is such a large scope that maybe it is really beyond the capacity of the industry I mean, we've seen with like some of the asbestos claims which are just a fraction you would think of what all this is going to be uh where we've seen a lot of insurers go bankrupt just because of that so yeah that that's uh, definitely a real concern as well um, um yeah but go having ahead, sorry. said that i mean it does seem to me that um you know large businesses that are going to be fighting these claims um groups of smaller businesses that are going to be fighting these claims it, it is way too early to just give up and say i'm not going to make a claim yeah so let's say you can get past a potential virus exclusion let's say you can get past this issue of whether there is physical damage to property or not how do you figure out as our last topic here how much you're actually entitled to from the insurance company and and that actually is maybe the most difficult issue um, on a case-by-case basis because the way you value your loss of business income claim and the way you can document the expenses that you incurred to restore your business and the way that you can actually show that this is what I would have made during this period of time minus the expenses that I did not incur plus the additional expenses I had to lay out in order to um, expedite my recovery or get a new supplier at a higher price because my old supplier went out of business. Um, these are very complicated valuation questions for which there's a whole another industry out there, you know, in forensic um, accounting and forensic uh, adjustment 
set of claims of people who do for a, this for a living and the fight goes on and on you know spreadsheet versus spreadsheet um, from the <laughs> insurer to the policyholder I have never seen a business income loss claim where everybody agreed that oh yeah this is this is how much my claim is worth and uh, this is um, what the insurance company owes me yeah so I, I guess I mean I, I always said this regardless of what case I was working on to my clients was just the better the records that you can keep as you're going through it when it's all fresh in your mind the better off you're going to be when it comes to actually prove how much you lost it and get paid absolutely documenting everything that happens um is a, a whole little cottage in the street of itself and and one that is a distraction for most business owners also i mean a, a business owner wants to have the ability to get back in and start doing their business and and their business their core of their business is not how to document their insurance loss yeah yeah but if you can set up systems i mean i think it helps to track all this stuff anyway if you can set up systems to do that now over the next however many months you'll be in a much better shape than if you're trying to go back and figure out what the heck you were doing during this time and what all your expenses were compared to what they would normally have been and stuff like that so um, anything else that's really, I think we covered it reasonably well, just what some of the issues uh, are going to be, uh, other than the fact that a lot of lawyers are probably going to be making a lot of money off of this. Um, anything else that sticks out to you uh, in uh, this analysis that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I guess, I mean, one thing I want people to be aware of, you know, which I said earlier, is that every policy is different and some policies have some additional coverages um, for what's called civil authority or um, blocked um, ingress and egress. Some of those coverages exist on a policy that may not be um, subject to the virus exclusion, uh, may not even be subject to the requirement for um, direct physical loss to property. So that that's another um, reason to figure out um, what kind of insurance you have. And I guess as kind of a takeaway, so who who out there is reading their insurance policy um, while they're staying at home doing nothing? I can tell you, <laughs> no one, no one is reading their insurance policy because no one, it, it, it's just, even coverage lawyers don't read their own insurance policy. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I decided to stop stop doing that for a reason. Well, well and, and so I have to say that, um, you know, finding your insurance policy, you know, and making sure you have a complete copy of it would be a great way to place to start um, reaching out to your broker or your agent if you think you don't have your whole policy um, would be a, a second um, resource um, I would say as kind of a um, a, a caveat emptor um, approach is that don't believe everything that your broker or agent is going to tell you um, uh, because really they are members of the insurance industry and a lot of brokers and agents are just going to be using a party line of what they're, the other the insurance companies are saying. Um, I think it's also, not to um, be too cynical here, but uh, you're going to see a wave of public adjusters um, who who uh, crop up, you know, after every hurricane and after every tornado, um, where they are specialists 
us in putting together claims for policyholders and taking a contingency um, for any recovery. Um, I'd say to people, small business owners in particular, to be very careful about what kind of contracts they enter into and uh, what kind of companies they agree to retain um, before you know they go up against their insurance company. And then, honestly, as you know this, Nate, there is so much information out there um, on the substantive issues that even a casual um, foray into the internet on coverage theories and coverage lawyers and COVID-19 insurance um, is going to give people you know, some degree of familiarity with the issues so that they're not victims of some other disreputable um, company. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think just a lot of people can just make the assumption, well, all right, I don't, I don't have coverage for this. It's definitely at least look and see. You know, I mean, I think that's like that. That's one of the big lessons for any uh, business owner. I, obviously, the big corporations, they, they have processes in place to do that. But if you're a small business owner, you may not be aware even of all the coverages that you do have. Yes. And one of the things I always like to say is don't take the first no for a final answer. Yeah. All right. Well, this is awesome, Mom. Thanks uh, for coming on. I, I'm uh, I'm sorry that it took a, a national calamity for <laughs> for you to first uh, come on the show, but it, it was fun to do this. And uh, I'll uh, you know talk to you three times in the next week. So, <laughs> well, and and I have to say that I'm sure all of my followers um, are going to be very interested in listening to the rest of your podcast. Um, I think that you've certainly added value um, to the ability to understand what's going on in the news. Um, and while I may not know that much about basketball, I'm certainly very proud of you and, and your accomplishment. All right. Well, I quite literally couldn't have done it without you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that'll be all for today's program. Thanks for listening. I want to remind you that in the next two days, we're actually going to be spinning this COVID-19 podcast off into another feed. So I hope that you all will subscribe to that. We'll continue to publish it here for a few more episodes on the Dunked On feed for those who might have missed it. But we thank you so much for listening. Appreciate your support. And I'll be back with Ben tomorrow. Till then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.